uh, Sunday morning. So what we're going to do tonight is a little bit different than what we've done on other Wednesday nights. I'm going to I'm going to just give you a broad overview of these three chapters, and then on Sunday we're going to concentrate on a few verses, specifically verse 15, 28, 15, their covenant with death, and verse 16, where God the Father says that He's going to uh, set a chief cornerstone. By the way, who is that cornerstone? Jesus. Okay, so. We'll get there, but uh, let's pick it up here in Isaiah chapter 28, and uh, we're just going to sort of, not sort of, we are going to go verse by verse through this section and uh, see what the Lord is trying to get his people to realize. Now, let's get you caught up a little bit on the history, and I'll go over this again on Sunday morning for the folks that missed tonight. But who remembers who the kings are when Isaiah is a prophet? Uzziah. Remember in chapter 6, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah, and after Uzziah is Jotham, and then Ahaz. Those are not good kings. And then we have a really good king, Hezekiah. And of course, by the time we get to Hezekiah, um, well, let, let's go back to Uzziah. Uzziah did something really stupid at the end of his life. But other than that one stupid thing he did, was Isaiah general? Isaiah was Uzziah generally a good king that walked in the law of the Lord, or was he primarily a bad king who was idolatrous? Anyway, good king, yeah, just in general. Now remember, at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, he went into the temple to offer a sacrifice, uh, which was only for the priest to do. And when the high priest confronted Uzziah and said, whoa, whoa, stop, you can't do this. Uh, king got angry, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? And what was the judgment that Uzziah faced when he did that? Yeah, he broke out with leprosy. So that, that's Uzziah's story. But Uzziah, when Uzziah is reigning, he's a, he's a good king and things are going well. Does anyone remember who the, for most of Uzziah's reign, who the contemporary king was in the north? I'm not trying to play trivia. I'm just, I'm going somewhere with all this. Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II, we don't read much about him in, in um, uh, the book of 2 Kings where he appears. But he extended the kingdom of Israel there all the way up to the entrance of Hamath again. Remember, that was uh, during the time of Jonah who made a prediction that uh, Jeroboam's reign was going to be prosperous. So, Jeroboam, here's my point. Jeroboam and Uzziah ruled during a time when Assyria was weak and they weren't a threat and there was great prosperity. And you can read more about this in the book of Amos, but this was one of those times when everyone said, hey, what could possibly go wrong? Life is so good. Uh, our economy is so strong. There are no enemies and we're just, we're on cruise control. And they forget that cruise control means you still have to have your hand on the wheel. That's I, I'm. That's the time that Isaiah is prophesying in here in chapter twenty-eight. And here, let me show it to you. Twenty-eight one, Isaiah twenty-eight one. Woe to the crown of what's that next word? Pride. Now let me just ask: Is pride a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. It can't be good. Okay, but here it's bad. Crown of pride. And why are they proud? To the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of fat valleys. You'll see that word fat valley comes up again in verse 4. And the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the fat valley. 
See, at this time, Syria's not a threat, economy's good, climate change is under control, they're not burning all the fossil fuels, and they're getting the rain when they need it, and, and I'm teasing about climate change. Okay? They're getting the rain when they need it, the land is fertile, there's plenty to drink, uh, wine in this case, plenty to eat, there's no external enemies, and they feel really good about themselves. But Isaiah says to them, woe, and then in verse 2, Behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to earth with the hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden underfoot. And the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the fat valley, shall be, as, be a fading flower, and as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he looketh upon it, seeth, while it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. So Isaiah's prophesying that right now things look good. Boy, you guys have fat valleys. You've got more than enough wine to drink. You think everything's going to be great, but it's as if you see that fruit, that first fruit in summer, and you say, boy, that looks great. I'm going to go. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to eat it. That's a reference to the Assyrians. The Assyrians are going to come. They're going to be that tempest of hail. They're going to be that destroying uh, storm. They're going to be like that flood that just overflows everything, and you guys are going to be just smacked down to the ground. Let's take a little side trip here, since we have time tonight. Um, do you notice several times here he says, drunkards, uh, verse 1 he brings it up, verse 3 he brings it up again, the crown of pride, the drunkards. Uh, let me encourage you again, don't drink alcohol. You say, well, I can have a cup of wine with dinner, I can have a beer with my pizza. Um you know what? I'm not going to argue with that. I'm just going to tell you, you're better off not. Because if you don't even start, you don't even start, you're never going to get drunk. I had a friend in Mongolia. I told this story before, but he asked me. He said, okay, pastor, how much can I drink before I'm drunk? Because, he said, the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, so surely I can drink some. So I said to him, I said, well, you tell me. How much do you think you can drink before you're drunk? He said, well, the problem, pastor, is when I take that first drink, it sort of warms me up, and then I take a second and a third and a fourth, and pretty soon I'm on the, lying on the ground. That was his, his own admission. I said, so how much do you think you should drink? He said, I probably shouldn't take the first drink. I said, that, why don't you just do that? Just uh, today, I was at a funeral, 21-year-old boy, out drinking with his buddies. Uh, one of them got in the car to drive. He was drunk, crashed, all four of them dead. Here's the sad thing. Here's the sad thing. At the funeral, several of them remarked on the fact that he was drinking even while he was in high school. And would sometimes steal liquor, well, they said take liquor, from his parents' liquor cabinet. Boy, how do you think the parents feel about that? Just take your liquor, break the bottles, pour it down the sink, whatever you need to do, get rid of all the alcohol in your house, and your kids will never steal alcohol from you. It's important. It is. You, you, I know people try to argue that the Bible doesn't say exactly how much you can drink. Well, it's definitely against drunkenness, and the truth is many of us can't handle liquor. I happen to come from a family where genetically we are predispos predisposed to binge drinking, and my dad said, don't ever start drinking, you never have to stop. But yeah, that's good. It served me well. Um, so again, avoid alcohol, but that's not the main point here. The main point is why are... These people in the north, northern kingdom, Ephraim and Israel, 
Why are they drunk? Why are they drinking to excess? Go ahead. Why are they drinking to excess, Matt? Because they're bad. They don't have any worries. Yeah, they don't have any worries. Life is good. They're trying to show that they're enjoying life. Now, sometimes people drink because life is really bad. They're trying to drown their sorrows. I understand that, but that's not the case here. These people are drinking because they feel unthreatened. They think their prosperity is going to last forever. What could possibly go wrong? Verse 5. By the way, if you have questions or you see something you want to bring to our attention, feel free to raise your hand. And uh, we'll, we'll, we're not going to get through all three chapters tonight, trust me. But uh, In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty unto the residue of his people. What is residue? A remnant, leftover, right? Not all of it, just a piece of it. Uh, just today, my, my son and wife worked really diligently because we had a large spill of laundry detergent on concrete. And it's terrible because no matter how much you get up, there's always this little residue. And uh, concrete is porous, so it gets down in the, and then you mop it, right? And then the bubbles come up again. <laughs> That's residue. God says there's going to be a residue. Now, I'm going to ask you, you put on your thinking caps because we're going to try to figure out where this residue is. And for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. Now, in that day, so what day is that? The day when the Assyrians come and they just overflow the northern kingdom and they cast to the ground and those people are wiped out. What happens to the southern kingdom in that time frame uh, as the Assyrians are threatening not just Israel, but also threatening Judah? This this history, I know you know. This is a trivia here. I'll give you a hint. It's King Hezekiah. Yeah, they didn't disappear. You're right. They disappeared. What happened to them? They got scared. Well, they, they did get scared in another story, but this story, they didn't. They got more than scared. What happened to them? They died. 185,000 soldiers died. Now, exactly how it happened, whether they just keeled over or it just says, and in the morning, they, when they woke up, they were all dead corpses. And so that attack of the Assyrians takes out the northern kingdom. And it's actually a few years later, but they come to attack the southern kingdom. They come right up to the gate of Jerusalem. Remember, they're, they're surrounding the city. And they actually send emissaries to yell at the people at the wall and threaten them and say, just you know, you just need to give up. What? Here's the mistake the Assyrians made. They said, what God could possibly save you from our hand? We've killed the God of this city. We killed the God of that city. And there is no God that can stand in our way. And the Lord God, the one who made heaven and earth, said, let's, let's see about that. You don't want to threaten God. Okay. But notice here in verse 5, in that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory. He's contrasting the crown of glory with what kind of crown? The crown of pride that's mentioned in the first four verses, two times. Woe to the crown of pride, verse 1. Um, um, uh, the crown of pride, verse 3, the drunkards of Ephraim. What's the difference between the northern kingdom and their crown of pride in general? What's the difference between the northern kingdom and their crown of pride? And the southern kingdom, which for, for them, the Lord of hosts, is going to be the crown of glory. What's the difference, main difference, between those two kingdoms? Think about what uh, was just said about uh, Hezekiah over here. Yes, Pat? The crown of Pride, they are putting themselves up. They're right. Being, you know, they're 
Look at us. And we're, we're prosperous. We're strong. Yeah. Zechariah, he humbled himself and he prayed. He knew he couldn't fight them, so he humbled himself before God and asked God to help him. And that gave God the glory because. That's the difference. Hezekiah would have said, oh, we can handle this. Look at all the armaments Uzziah left us. You remember King Uzziah built towers and stacked spears and shields in different cities. Hezekiah would say, we can handle this, guys. Come on. We just got to be strong. We got to, you know, got to be tough. We got to, we can beat these guys. They would have lost too. Because it, would, it would have been their own pride. We can do this. Instead, Hezekiah goes to God. He says, look, look, they're threatening us. They're threatening you. They're saying that you can't even stop them. And of course, God made a difference. But notice there's a residue. I'm going to come back to that word again, a residue. Because many of the cities of Judah fell during that time. Azekah, Lachish, several other cities are mentioned as having been conquered by the Assyrians, taken out by the Assyrians. So there was just a remnant, there was just a residue, there was just part of Judah that was spared. Notice one other thing here in verse 6, and uh, I'll be... Frank, I didn't see this the first time I read it. It wasn't until I was reading the commentary. And he said, did you notice that? I was like, no, I didn't notice that. Verse 6. For a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. Now, to the gate's a fine translation, but we don't say it that way today. We would say those who turn the battle at the gate. In other words, the battle comes right up to the gate, and that's where the battle turns. And instead of being defeated, they won the victory came right up to the gate. The, the Assyrians were literally at the walls of Jerusalem. And then God said, okay, this far, no further. And he left a remnant, left a residue. Now, why, why am I so excited about this? Because I think our country is coming apart. Yes. I think it's going to pieces. And if I was trusting in me, crown of pride, trusting in you, crown of pride, trusting in some political party or some particular politician or even some pastor or whatever, Boy, there's not a whole lot of hope. I'll tell you where our hope is going to be. It's going to be in a God who turns the battle back at the gate. I mean, they may come right up. They may come right up to the gate. But when God says this far and no further, that's where they're going to stop. So we need to be like Hezekiah. We need to take the threats against us to the Lord first. Again, I'm not saying don't vote. You ought to vote. I'm not saying don't uh, uh, go to court to enforce our legal rights, our legal rights to, to religion, to worship. I'm not saying we don't do that, but I'm saying the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go to God and we're going to say, God, here are the threats Here are the threats against us. Here are the things they're saying about us. Here are the things they're saying about you. Because he's the one who's going to be the crown of glory. He's the one that's going to preserve that remnant. He's going to be the one who turns the battle back to the gate, a battle back at the gate. Verse, the beginning of verse 6, For a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment. The Assyrian king, Sennacherib, thinks, I'm going to show these people who's boss. They're going to find out who's really in charge. I'm going to be sitting in judgment. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to sit in judgment over you. You think you're sitting in judgment. Are there people today that think that they're above all this religious mumbo-jumbo that we know is truth? Of course there are. They think they're beyond God's laws. They think they're beyond... Nobody can touch them, they think. We know someone who can change their attitude, change their direction. And that's why I found, as I was reading this passage, why I found so much encouragement in this, because the God who protected Hezekiah 
what, 2,700 years ago, 2,800 years ago, is the same God that we worship today. We don't need to be afraid of our enemies. We need to take it to the Lord. Verse 7, they also have erred through wine, there it is again, alcoholism, through strong drink have gone out of the way. But notice who's gone out of the way this time. It's not the people of Ephraim, it's the priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They're swallowed up of wine. They're out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there is no place clean. Now there's a change here in what Isaiah is seeing. Before he was looking up north and he was looking at Ephraim and he said, woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. These people aren't the people of Ephraim. They're not the the kingdom is Israel because look at verse 14 wherefore look hear the word of the Lord ye scornful men that rule this people which is in Jerusalem verse 7 is a change in, in, in the vision that Isaiah is having from looking at what the kingdom of Israel is doing now he's looking at what the kingdom of Judah is doing and he's saying even here in Judah the priest the prophet their, their mind has been warped through drinking again avoid alcohol and they say in verse 9, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast? For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Now sometimes we read this and we say, and I've heard this application made, uh, this, is, this is referring to we need to teach our children from a young age. We do need to teach our children from a young age. But the people who are speaking this, whom shall he teach knowledge, are the drunkards in verses 7 and 8, who are saying about Isaiah, who's prophesying about them. Whom shall Isaiah teach knowledge? Is he, is he going to teach us? Hey, we're the priests. We're the prophet. We know. What is he going to teach us? By precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, little there a little? Is that what he's going to teach us? Is, how, is, it, is that how he's going to teach us? Like we're children? Now you say, how do you, how do I, why do I understand the passage that way? Because look at verse 12 with me. To whom he said, to whom Isaiah said, this is the rest wherein you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they, the priest and the prophet, would not hear. But to them, the word of the Lord was precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. He's warning him, listen, don't mock God. Don't mock God's word. Don't, don't think you know everything. Back at verse 12, though, to whom he said, to whom he said, this is the rest wherein you may cause the weary to rest. Hold your place there and go over to chapter 30 and verse 15. Chapter 30 and verse 15. Isaiah 30, verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. But ye would not. But ye said, No, for we will flee upon horses. Therefore ye shall, flee, shall ye flee. And we will ride upon the swift. Therefore, where, yeah, therefore shall they that pursue you be swift. 
You know what God's calling his people to? He's calling them to rest. What are the people of, of Judah? Yes, the Assyrians are going to come. Yes, the Assyrians are going to annihilate the northern kingdom. They're going to deport the folks that are left. They're going to come right up to the walls of Jerusalem. But what does God want his people, the Jewish people, what does he want them to rest in? Yes, in him, to wait on the Lord, to trust God, to be their strength. The Christian life is, is a struggle. Don't, don't misunderstand me. And there's times, boy, we just, we're just churning away. Uh, uh, Matt's described it to me. It's like you're in the boxing ring, you know, and sometimes you give a few punches and sometimes you take a few punches. Yes, I understand that the Christian life is like that. But the Christian life is also a life of rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are never finding that rest, you're probably, most likely, my diagnosis is, you're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength. God doesn't want us to live the Christian life in our own strength. I can't live the Christian life in my own strength. You can't live the Christian life in your own strength. And God says, come, trust me, rest in me. Let me give you some refreshing. Let me encourage you when you're weary. And we say, no, no, I've got to try harder. I've got to keep moving. Sometimes you just need to, to, to stop and rest in God's goodness. Now, I know, I know, we're all busy. And you say, well, I just can't ever stop. Sometimes we can't stop because we don't want to stop. We, we can. We can carve out an hour. We can find that, that time to pray, to to, to read God's word, to listen to God-honoring music that refreshes our souls. We just don't take that time because we're busy. Don't be too busy for God. Here he says again, back to chapter 28, verse 12. To whom he said, this is the rest where you may cause the way to rest. And this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. They didn't want to hear. God said, okay, here, listen, rest in me, trust me. I'm going to be that crown of glory when the Assyrians come through. I'm going to be that crown of glory. It's the uh, uh, Assyrian king, Sennacherib. He thinks he's sitting in judgment. I'm going to be the one who sits in judgment. He's going to bring the battle all the way to the gate, and then I'm going to strengthen you, and you're going to turn the battle back at the gate. But you've got to rest in me. You've got to wait on me. You've got to trust in me. And what did they say? No, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, look at verse 15 with me. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, that's a reference to the Assyrians, when the overthrowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Look what they're trusting in instead of trusting in God. They're trusting in a an agreement with hell? In a bargain with death? We're going to look more at what that means on Sunday and how we can apply it to our current conditions. But I think if we would sit down and think about it, and we will on Sunday, we'll think about it. This is very, very much like the United States. People, Americans who think, well, we don't have to deal with God. We've got, an, we've got a bargain with the devil. We've got a bargain with death. We've got a bargain with science. And then that's when God says, verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. 
Again, we'll, we'll break this out more on Sunday, but I just want you to see the context. He calls his son, Jesus Christ, a, a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious stone, a precious cornerstone, excuse me, a sure foundation. For he that believeth shall not make haste. Think about what that means. That's, that's old English. Yep, it's, we wouldn't say it that way today. What would we say today? For he that believeth will not make haste. Instead of haste, what word are we likely to use? Hurry. Okay, so the person who trusts in Jesus Christ, he's not going to be in a hurry. He's not going to be all worked up and in turmoil. What am I going to do? Why not? Why not? Let's ask one of the team boys. Reuben? Aaron? Why not? Why is this person who believes in Jesus, this cornerstone, this precious stone, a tried stone, why isn't he going to be in a hurry? Why isn't he going to be panicked? Yes, he has faith that God will bring him through. Where is your faith tonight? Seriously, where, think about it. This is not rhetorical. Well, it's rhetorical in that I'm not expecting an answer. But I do want you to think about it. Where is your faith tonight? Is it in your bank account? I hope not. My bank account's not that big. But even if you had the, even if you had the money of, 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 of Jeff Bezos, is that going to save him when he passes into eternity? What if you had the what if you were the smartest person in the United States? By the way, the smartest person in the United States does not attend our church. I'm the second smartest person. No, I'm just teasing. But seriously, let's imagine you were the smartest person in the United States. Are your wits and your wisdom and your knowledge going to matter when you get to eternity if you are without God? Listen, where is our faith? What are we trusting in? God says, trust me, I want to give you refreshing. I want the weary to rest. So often we say, no, no, I've got this. We'll look more at that on Sunday. Notice verse 18. Your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, again, a reference to verse 15, then ye shall be trodden down by it couple more verses and I'm going to skip over them and go um, uh, to verse 22 which sort of sums up this passage from verse uh, uh, 7 all the way through verse 21 verse 22 says now therefore be ye not mockers lest your bands be made strong for I have heard from the Lord of God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth be, don't mock God don't make fun of what he tells you to do. Because if you do, your bands will be strong. Now, these aren't rubber bands. What kind of bands are these? Bonded. Bonded. Shackles. You, may, you mock God? You think you're going to just, you know, poo-poo his talk? And I, what are, well, who's going to teach us? Is it going to be what? Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Like you're teaching children. We know all this. Don't mock, he says. Or you're going to make your bondage even harsher. If you would um, take some time over the next few days to read chapters 29 and 30, uh, you'll see some of these same um, uh, themes repeated. But let me go to chapter 29, verse 13, to a verse that you have seen before. And uh, let's look at it again. Isaiah 29, 13, Wherefore the Lord saith, for as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, 
but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of, the prudent, of their prudent men shall be hid. You understand now why I said to you back in verse uh, 28, verse 9, whom shall he teach knowledge is not God speaking to the people. It's the people talking back to God. Who's Isaiah going to teach knowledge to? We know we're the smart ones. We're the intelligent ones. We're the priests. We're the prophets. And God says in verse in chapter 29 and verse 14, I'm going to do a marvelous, amazing, something that just people go, wow, at. And the wisdom of the wise person is going to disappear. The understanding of the smart guy is going to be gone. Why? Because with their mouth, they said, oh, we love God. We, will, we want to serve him. But where were their hearts? Their hearts are far from him. There's a phrase I often use, and this is what I'm talking about. We can go through the spiritual motions. We can go through the church motions. If you're here on a Wednesday night, which you are, obviously, you're watching on a Wednesday night. You obviously you, you know enough to know that you, you ought to act like you're interested, right? You ought to bring your Bible. You know, every once in a while I, I uh, sneak into one of these uh, children's classes and I look around and I say to one of the kids, Where's your Bible? Oh, I, I forgot it. You know not to do that here. Because, you know, Pat, where's your Bible? Oh, I forgot it. You're smarter than that. You're smart enough to talk the talk. Yeah, I believe God, I have faith. Smart enough to say, praise the Lord. You're smart enough to sing the songs. But where's your heart? Your heart's somewhere else. Now, I can't see your heart. I can only see what, what you put in front of me. And you can fool me. You can fool me for years. But you can't fool God. And what we find, what we see, what we, we see God doing is he reveals our hearts over time. So yeah, maybe you fool me for a year or two or five. The time comes... When things get tough, when that overflowing flood comes, when that tempest of storm and that that uh, tempest of hail, excuse me, and the uh, over overthrowing storm comes, and your faith is shown to be not in Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. You're that fellow that's built his house upon the sand, and the house looked really good. Your house is better than my house, but it's on the sand and it collapses. So who are we trusting in? Do we really believe that God can protect us? and preserve us, and, and that we could be that remnant, that residue. I mean, it's God's choice. If he says, you get wiped up with the flood too, boy, guess what? I get to go home to heaven. But if he wants us to be that remnant, that residue, do we believe God can do it? Be careful. I, I was reading again today. Be careful. Don't be caught up in all the conspiracy theories. And Are there conspiracies in the United States? Yes. Is there demonic influence in the United States? Yes. But a conspiracy, by definition, you will not know about. If you know about it, it's no longer a conspiracy. You understand that, don't you? I mean, you. We're, we're, we don't know anything. We don't, we're so far from Washington, D.C. Are there conspiracies going on there? Oh, without a doubt. Do you and I know about it? No. And we don't need to figure them out because our trust is in the Lord. Now, I'm not saying be blind, don't care. I'm just saying. Don't listen to these people that say, I, I know what's really going on, let me tell you. And they're wrong once, and then twice, and then three, and then six times. Oh, but this time I know. Just turn those people off. 
and get into the word and read the Bible and trust the Lord. When the Lord wants you to know something, he'll reveal it to you. Yes. Because these people here in chapter 29, uh, what was it, verse 15, 14, they thought they were so smart. God says, listen, I'm going to do something marvelous. I'm going to take the wisdom of the wise and I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to take the understanding of the prudent. It's going to go away. Um, boy, there's so much more here, but we have reached 745. Let me encourage you to reread chapter 28 and then read 29 and 30. And we're just going to hit a couple of the verses from these chapters on Sunday morning in the, in the preaching. And you'll be better prepared for the preaching on Sunday morning if you understand the context. So that's why I wanted to give you that, that context. Uh, Matt, 